Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 4th of November. Today, Lloyds and the Royal Bank of Scotland are to get nearly £40 billion more of taxpayers' money in return for a ban on bonuses and the sell-off of parts of their businesses. Stronger and safer banks, better able to support the recovery and more competition and more choice for people who use them. Also today, how the Americans got Gordon Brown to sound a bit more like this. Guided by the ancient vision of a promised land, let us set our sights upon a land of new promise. And 30 years after David Attenborough's Life on Earth, its incredible soundtrack is released. David Attenborough was quite pleased because, you know, he's that kind of person. I think he's just been enthusiastic about just about anything. But first, the news. One of Britain's biggest car companies, Vauxhall, is not being sold after all. General Motors has decided at the last minute that the market's improving enough for it to carry on with its European operation. So it won't sell either Vauxhall or Opel in Germany. The Germans are angry, but the leader of the union representing Vauxhall's 5,500 staff said it was a fantastic decision. GM will now restructure the businesses itself. Barack Obama has taken his first electoral defeat since becoming president. In elections for state governors, Republicans won back Virginia and New Jersey in clear victories. It's a setback for the Democrats, but they said the votes were based on local rather than national issues. MPs will hear how much their expenses and allowances are to be cut back today when Sir Christopher Kelly publishes his recommendations on reforming the system. He's expected to argue that MPs should no longer be allowed to employ members of their families and that those from the London area should no longer get finance for second homes. Meanwhile, the man who was the minister responsible for Afghanistan has said we should start withdrawing troops. In an exclusive article for our paper, Kim Howells says we should instead spend the money on fighting terrorism at home and abroad through intelligence and propaganda. His job is now to supervise intelligence and security for Gordon Brown. Football and in the Champions League, both Chelsea and Manchester United drew their games last night. The Reds only made it 3-0 in the last minutes of their match against CSKA Moscow. The Blues were unlucky not to keep Atletico Madrid from making making it to all also in the closing minutes. It's the story about Kim Howells that's on the front page of our paper this morning, but the picture is of London Mayor Boris Johnson in biking gear after he chased away a gang of girls threatening a woman. He was named the knight on a shining bicycle. Several other papers lead on the Lisbon Treaty, which was finally approved by all countries in the EU when the Czech Republic signed it off yesterday. Britain, the end, screams the express, with a mock-up photo of Big Ben and the EU flag flying from its spire. As Lisbon Treaty becomes law, we've been sold down the river, the paper goes on. For the Sun, Britain is betrayed, signed, sealed, delivered. Up yours, is their response. The Telegraph's version is, power drains away to EU as treaty gets go-ahead. But the other Murdoch paper, The Times, is more cheerful. From Nights of Anguish to Dawn of a New Europe reads their headline. They say there's now a race on to find a new president under the Lisbon system. The Times chooses a picture of Wayne Rooney for its splash, though. In football gear, he's clapping the fans as the paper imagines his thoughts. What I did on my paternity leave, play football. He came off the bench last night to help his team the day after becoming a father. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. 
The Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyds are to face new restrictions on bonuses after receiving nearly £40 billion more of taxpayers' money. In return for the state aid, the banks will have to sell off parts of their businesses under rules imposed by Brussels. Alistair Darling, the Chancellor, told MPs the taxpayer would eventually be repaid. Mr Speaker, I believe these steps are better for the taxpayer, they are better for the banks and they are better for the economy. As a result, the likely cost to the taxpayer and the risks faced by the public finances have reduced markedly. The total assets protected have been reduced by over £300 billion. There is more private sector investment and the fees received are better structured. Dan Roberts, our head of business, has the details. He's announced um, a big new restructuring of um, both Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's, um, which has been some time brewing, um, amounts to about £40 billion of um, of of government money going into the two banks, um, some of which we knew about before, a lot of which is new. Um, in return, he's extracted some promises on bonuses. Um, and simultaneously, the EU has demanded that both institutions sell off large chunks of themselves uh, in order to satisfy state aid rules and, and promote competition. So all these three things are swirling around at once. But the, the key thing here is that the government is putting an awful lot more money into the banking system. Why do they need more of taxpayers' money? Well, both these um, banks um, uh, were in limbo for a few months. If you remember, there was sort of two stages to this. First of all, they've they've actually collapsed in the autumn. And then in February, the government sort of put a stopgap measure in, which was basically they announced what was called the Asset Protection Scheme. And it was to try and ensure some of these banks' worst loans. Should they all go, should all the loans default, the government would step in. Now, the, the the, the problem was that the devil was in the detail and the amount of money they had to pay the government for this insurance scheme took months and months to negotiate. And effectively, what we've had yesterday is the, the end of that six-month process to try and hammer out exactly um, who owes um, what. Now... Uh, Critics have said today is also an acceptance that the asset protection scheme announced back in February just simply didn't work. What's happened is Lloyd's has come out of it and has had to raise money in another way to compensate. And RBS has had to renegotiate the terms. And what kind of shape will this lead the banks in? And, you know, does it protect them from similar problems that happened earlier in the, in the year? Well, it, there's two big um, uh, changes structurally. One is the EU ruling on, on splitting bits of themselves up. So RBS will have to sell Churchill um, and, and other bits of its insurance arm. They'll have to sell several hundred branches north and south of the border. Um, the same with Lloyd's. Um, this amounts to about 10% of the British banking industry that's, that's going to have to be put up for sale. So these these might seem small in comparison with the billions that we're throwing, but they're, they're, it's quite a monumental day really for restructuring the British banking industry. The aim is to create more competition, have more more names on the high street, more people able to offer loans. Um, the other question you ask in, in that is, is is this enough to stop these banks going bust again? Um, I think the answer is yes, in the sense that conditions have improved a bit and they are at less at risk of going bust than they were. But ultimately, the state still stands behind both banks. And if they get into trouble again, we're going to have to put our hands in our pocket again. And what about the um, conditions on bonuses? I mean, is, is this what we've been wanting the government to do uh, as regards bankers' bonuses? Uh, my personal view is 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 not. It's a start. Um, they've said basically that neither Lloyds nor RBS can pay bonuses in cash um, uh, for the moment. Um, now, um, 
RBS had got into a bit of trouble from trying to sort of um, uh, attract new staff to its investment bank with guaranteed bo- cash bonuses. So to that extent, that, 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 that'll be closed down. Um, it leaves RBS with a recruitment problem. I mean, this is another, another big issue. Um, but really, these weren't the banks that were paying the huge bonuses. Um, it's, it's all sorts of other banks in, in, in Britain, Barclays or Goldman Sachs. This is where the return of the bonus culture has really caused a stink. And nothing that's been said will change that. Dan Roberts. Well, as Dan just said, the sell-off is intended to bring more competition onto the high street. I asked Hilary Osborne, the editor of guardian.co.uk slash money, what it will mean for the consumer. Well, hopefully it will mean more choice and better rates. Uh, The Chancellor's indicated that he does want these banks' assets that are being sold off to go to new brands rather than be gobbled up by big banks that we already have on the high street. So, more more names means more competition. What's happened with um, companies like Santander who've come in and they've bought Alliance and Leicester and Abbey, they've actually streamlined their ranges. So now instead of being able to choose between a savings account at Abbey or one at Alliance and Leicester, you've just got the same account if you go to either one. So hopefully by splitting these companies up, we'll be able to, they'll be competing with each other and, and rates will be more competitive for customers. And will they actually be new names or will they be uh, name, brand names that we associate with other services like Tesco and Virgin? They, they do seem to be the front runners at the moment. I mean, there's some speculation about Tesco. They've already got their massive network across the country. So it's wonder why they would want to come in and buy something that had a branch network so they might not actually be that interested but virgin money seemed to be a sort of major name to watch they're, they're certainly looking for funding and they're already they've applied for a banking license i believe they're they're already offering credit cards so um company so customers are quite familiar with their brand, so it would probably make good sense for them to come in with current accounts and savings accounts as well. And we'll be talking about high streets and branches, but isn't really the future of banking online? Um, I mean, we've been saying this for years, <laughs> but people do still like to have a branch. A lot of people like to go in and, and talk to someone, see someone in in real life. And I, I think some of the things that happened last year with iSave, for example, collapsing, made people think even more, actually, that they want a tangible presence. They want somewhere, if if there's problems, they can go and queue up outside. They're not sort of hoping to get through on a phone line and and hoping to get onto a website that keeps crashing. So I think that's made people actually like high street branches more than ever before. Hilary Osborne and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash business. I'm John Dennis, still to come on Guardian Daily. D-Day for David Cameron as he faces down his Eurosceptic critics in the Tory party. They want a Conservative government to play hardball with Brussels and uh, basically do what Margaret Thatcher did, march in there, swing his sort of handbag or blackberry and come back uh, uh, with a substantially renegotiated package. But first... American speechwriters helped craft the British Prime Minister's speech to US Congress earlier this year. That's what The Guardian reveals today. A firm called West Wing Writers helped the Prime Minister follow the likes of Winston Churchill, Clement Attlee, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair in addressing Capitol Hill. I come to this great capital of this great nation, an America renewed under a new president, to say that America's faith in the future has been, is, and always will be an inspiration to me and to the whole world. 
Daniel Nassau is in Washington for The Guardian. They've been working for him for several years now, and in the last two years since he's been prime minister, they have uh, collaborated on speeches that he has given to U.S. audiences, including a joint session of Congress last year and an appearance at the John F. Kennedy Memorial Library in which he talked about the global war on terrorism. Which other politicians have employed this firm, West Wing Writers? West Wing Writers has also been employed by uh, the Jordanian court, uh, specifically Queen Rania. And other than that, they won't say. They uh, boast on their website that they are confidential and guarantee secrecy to their clients. So how has this come to light? Well, the payments were disclosed in filings that West Wing writers made to the U.S. Justice Department because they were employed by an agent of a foreign government, namely Gordon Brown. Do we know which sections of Gordon Brown's speech to Congress back in March were written by the Americans? No, it is uh, not possible. It's not disclosed. But there are some sections that, to my ears, betray uh, a sensitivity to American political sentiment. In particular, there is a reference to, quote, the bravery and valor of the Americans who gave that last full measure of devotion. And that is instantly recognizable to many American ears as a reference to Abraham Lincoln's 1863 Gettysburg Address. Because uh, this speech to Congress was was quite different from a lot of speeches that Gordon Brown has made in the past. This was commented on by uh, a lot of people at the time. You know, it employed a lot of adjectives and abstract nouns and uh, just language that Gordon Brown wouldn't usually be heard using. Well, I suppose we now know why, that he was hiring a crack team of Americans who uh, worked for uh, Bill Clinton during uh, his White House years. Daniel Nassau. And there's more news and comment from America on The Guardian's website today. I'm Megan Mulligan, and I'm The Guardian's news editor in America. Today we have the results for gubernatorial races in New Jersey and Virginia, the mayoral contest in Atlanta, and referenda on same-sex marriage in Maine and Washington. Our bureau chief in the U.S. Capitol, Ewan McCaskill, writes on the first tests of democratic power by voters since President Obama's election last November, and editor-at-large Michael Tomaski discusses what the results mean for politicians on both sides of the aisle. Click on guardian.co.uk slash America for all the details and video of voters going to the polls. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. David Cameron faces a backlash from Eurosceptics in his party as he ditches the policy of holding a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. Now the Czechs have signed, the treaty is likely to be implemented throughout the European Union within days. Andrew Sparrow, our senior political correspondent, is in our Westminster office. William Hague confirmed that last night, although it had been uh, pretty obvious uh, since it became clear that uh, his hopes of... um, getting the checks to hold out till May or June uh, uh, weren't going to materialise. They had a lot of flack for this because some people think this is a binding promise that sort of William Hague has broken. Uh, as far as I can, I'm, I'm not in that camp. As far as I can tell, sort of the, the commitment was always to hold a referendum while the, the ratification process was still underway. And it was always obvious to, to me from the way I read what they were saying that uh, if the treaty became part of EU law then they were into different territory that's that's what Cameron's argued but 
you know, some people in his party think sort of a promise is a promise and um, uh, that small print never really applied and, and they want the referendum anyway. I mean, David Cameron uh, has uh, already um, got into a bit of trouble over his uh, new alignment in Europe with the Poles and uh, the Latvians. And that that was uh, because of a promise to Eurosceptics in his party. How worried will he be uh, about their response to this? Anyone who was in the Conservative Party in the kind of 80s and the 90s, and remember, this is that's where... David Cameron and George Osborne and, and, and all of the, the Cameroons are of the generation where their sort of political worldview was was formed in those years, the, the, the final years of the Thatcher era, the, the years of the major government. And David Cameron used to uh, brief major for PMQs. And uh, that was a time when Europe poured poison into the Conservative Party. The, the party ripped itself apart for sort of getting on for 10 years uh, over... Uh, the theology of Europe. So he knows it's a, it's a potentially explosive problem. Uh, that said, in, in the short term, uh, um, we've heard from some Eurosceptics saying we've got to have a, a referendum even if, if the, the, the treaty is law. Most of the, 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 the kind of senior heavyweight Eurosceptics aren't taking that position they they say sort of we accept that it'd be pointless to to have a vote now on something that is eu law because effectively what you'd be doing is having a referendum uh, on membership of the eu but uh, and this is a very important but they want a conservative government to play hardball with brussels and uh, basically do what margaret thatcher did march in there swing his sort of handbag or blackberry and come back uh, uh, with a substantially renegotiated package. Uh, David Cameron, David Cameron is a Eurosceptic, I mean he's not a, um, just because he's young and modernised, a lot of people on the left think, oh he must be a, a closet Europhile. He isn't, I mean he's a, he's a, he's a, a Europe very sceptical about the European project, but he's also someone who I think doesn't want the first five years of a conservative government to be dominated by splits and rows about Europe because he's seen where that got the party into trouble in the past so so my analysis is in, in the short term there's going to be a bit of a row but it, it probably won't be damaging in the long term uh, uh, this is a potentially uh, a really problematic area for them Andrew Sparrow in Westminster Guardian Daily news and reports from around the world For 13 weeks back in 1979, millions of people watched the BBC's landmark natural history blockbuster Life on Earth, presented by Sir David Attenborough. The composer Edward Williams provided the musical backing for the series, but the soundtrack has never been issued in its own right. Until now, 30 years after it is recorded, Johnny Trunk of Trunk Records, which specialises in esoteric and obscure vinyl, is giving it the treatment it deserves. I think with all great music it adds to 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 you know adds adds lots of dimensions doesn't it it adds to the sort of the whole movement of the of the the visuals but it also adds to a lot of time to the sort of emotional content of everything you know if you've got two two flatworms courting you know a, a sort of romantic number behind it all is, is going to add to the to the, the whole impact of it <laughs> i mean you, you talk about courting but there are quite a lot of uh, there is quite a lot of courtship going well, on that's, in that's the series. life on earth we yeah. don't have life on earth unless we all start courting it's yeah as simple as there's that. a track on this uh, collection called the sex life of the fern yeah yeah i mean it's it's but that's that's what it is isn't it it's all it's everything reproduces that's how we 
stay alive. Um, and the, the music, and the, the way that Edward Williams made this music was interesting, wasn't it? Tell us about that. Yeah, he's a he's a fascinating composer because first of all, no one knows who he is, which is which is great. It's classic kind of trunk records. That's finding someone who's no one's heard of. He's actually sort of quite fabulous. So he's he studied under Mia Matheson, who's who's the, one of the great conductors of British film music. So things like Vertigo and all these amazing scores over the oh, since really wartime about 1969-1970 so very early British synthesis and when he was making Life on Earth he'd, he'd compose the classical uh, orchestrations get them recorded and then feed them through these VCS3s these incredible British synthesizers, which, which adds this fluid and quite otherworldly dimension to them actually they're, they're, so, so they have this you have this beautiful sort of classical music but then you have this underlying and sometimes uh, well, it's, it's, I'd call it underlying, underlying sort of wash of, of not noise, just, just electronics. It's very delicately done. You, you don't notice it until someone points it out, and then, and then you realise that it's all this synthesised classical music. It's very clever. And, and uh, have David Attenborough and uh, Edward Williams given any reaction to the fact that you can now get this soundtrack finally after 30 years? Well, I think, I think David, David Attenborough was quite pleased because... You know, he's that kind of person. He, I think he's just been enthusiastic about just about anything. And he thought that Edward's music was, in his words, jolly good. You know, it was, it was perfect for, for what they were after. They wanted, you know, modern chamber music, and that's what they got. As for Edward Williams, I think he's absolutely thrilled. I think he he's, can't quite believe that, that this thing not only exists, but, but actually that, that people are, are sort of going, oh, it's quite good. You know, people. There, there are now people who've actually heard about Edward Williams, which is quite ironic, really. He's sort of in the twilight of his career, and I think his wife said to me the other day, he can't quite believe that after what 50 years of writing music and no one hearing of him, people are actually now starting to find out who he is. That's from the Life on Earth soundtrack on Trunk Records, available at trunkrecords.com. And there's a longer version of that interview with Johnny Trunk at guardian.co.uk slash audio. Andy Duckworth, Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. I'm John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Listener.